Hello, I'm Mel. And I'm Steph. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls. The topic for our mini-episode today is fascism. Why fascism? Well, our upcoming February episode on Nosaka Akiyuki's Grave of the Fireflies and American Hijiki got us thinking about a pretty classic question in the field of modern Japanese history. Was Imperial Japan fascist? Yeah, there's a pretty big range of opinions on whether or not Imperial Japan was fascist. And we'll definitely link a bibliography to that growing body of work on this question. But maybe we should start out by defining fascism. Definitely. So what is fascism? I think we're hearing this word a lot more nowadays or in, I should say, 21st century America. It's a great insult. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It seems to be thrown around as this sort of pseudo pretentious insult, which reads more as as Nick Harkaway says, someone doing something I don't like, which is not helpful as a way to define a term. No, even if it feels good to say it. (laughs) Yes. So what does it actually mean? Well, in a really historically specific sense, right, fascism comes from Italy, especially Benito Mussolini's National Fascist Party. And that was really the first iteration of fascism that we saw historically. And really, it was a reactionary movement, both against, interestingly, capitalism and communism. Both of them. Yeah, it's um, kind of an interesting linkage, right, in that relationship, I think. Maybe we should define also the word reactionary. Right. Also a really great insult. (laughs) (laughs) Reactionary, if, if we want to use fascism as an example, right, it literally kind of refers to this ideology or movement that is a reaction against, in the case of capitalism, right, we can see the negative aspects of capitalism, which I think we'll go into later, and in the, like communism, the kind of a liberal movement that's seen as kind of, they're both kind of seen as dangers, right, to the nation. So reactionary meaning they're reacting to sort of both progressive forces and also capitalist forces and instead want, I think classically, want to go back to some previous earlier historical stage or situation that the movement views as better right right it was better in the old days right right it's kind of a fantasy of tradition right and and the past and we can also really say that at its core it is traditionally very right-wing authoritarian and as we already said you know reactionary and but so maybe we could also say some of these other markers of what we mean when we say fascism We might add to that, that fascism engages in mass mobilization. It employs state intervention in everyday life of citizenry. And typically, in order to achieve that, there's a lot of suppression of domestic opposition to those forces. So like censorship, arrest of political dissidents, this type of thing. Exactly. Okay. 
So we know what fascism is, at least roughly. So did Japan have fascism? Can we answer this like, oh, yes, it did, or no, it didn't. It should be easy, right? Yeah, no, not at all. (laughs) If only. There has been such a vibrant discussion, I think, over the use of this word fascism and whether we should use it when we talk about imperial Japan. And, you know, some of so some of the older historiography on this subject, right? Some other thinkers, I'm thinking specifically of Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm talked about this. He talks about fascism really extensively. So, you know, he basically flat out says Imperial Japan was not fascist. Um, And this is despite the fact that, you know, the Japanese imperialist regime not only emulated and allied itself with Germany and Italy, who Hobsbawm definitely thinks was fascist, but was by definition a right-wing authoritarian movement. So he recognizes that like Japan's imperialist regime was a right-wing authoritarian movement and that it was allied with these other fascist regimes. Yes. Basically, I think the way that Hobsbawm is framing imperial Japan versus other fascist powers, it relies on stereotypes about Japanese culture, and it really sets up a binary of the West and the East as really different fundamentally. And that really runs up against the realities and the facts that we see of how li- what life was like in Imperial Japan. And I think another argument against Japan being fascist that doesn't rely on these sort of old stereotypes is that fascism has to be a mass movement. So in Germany, you have the Nazi party, and in Italy, you have the fascist party. These are parties with really mass support that put these regimes into power, whereas in Japan... You have an emperor at the head of the political system and you have basically the military making a lot of the decisions. And there's never a fascist party like capital F like Italy or small f like the Nazi party that is voted into power by mass support. That never happens in Japan. Right. However, some historians think that Japan was fascist and it actually did have grassroots support. Yeah. So... I'm thinking especially of the work of Yoshimi Yoshiaki, who has asserted that Japan was definitely fascist and had grassroots support from the Japanese people. And this really, it gives back agency and autonomy to Japanese folks in a way that I think is not present in the Hobsbawm argument, right, and the framing of the subject. And Yoshimi Yoshiaki basically says that while the Japanese people were victims, they were also participants. And that when we look at fascism, Uh, in Japan or anywhere, really, it's really important to look at them in a global kind of conversation and framework. Yes. And he also notes that there was mass mobilization of people and that there was mass support for Japan's imperial project, especially through sympathetic, patriotic news coverage in many newspapers in Japan, Um, and as well as a lot of people who felt shut out from the middle class in Japan at this time. So Japan in the 1930s and 40s had relatively high educational levels, but these educational levels often didn't match people's economic situations and their expectations. And so there were a lot of people who were sort of educated at what might be seen as a middle class level and wanted to be middle class, but they couldn't achieve that. And so sometimes they saw Japan's imperial project and Japan's colonies 
Japan's domestic fascism as beneficial in helping them achieve their personal goals. And so they did support this regime. Right. So there was grassroots support and other experts on the matter, right? And like anthropologist Marilyn Ivey, you know, point out that although the emperor didn't occupy the same space as, say, like Hitler and Mussolini, he was part of this leader position in fascist Japan and that the state in a classic way focused on these certain dangers both from without and within, right? So there was kind of the demonization of the West as a source of excessive and decadent capitalism. And then within Japan, there was this, again, demonization of Koreans and communists within the borders of Japan. Right, which is a very classic characteristic of fascism. Right. And that actually ties us into what's going on in the United States right now. We have seen a rise in hate groups. Which we might think about in terms of people who see a danger within the United States. Yes. They think either Muslims are the danger. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, anti-Muslim hate groups are up from 34 in 2015 to 101 last year in 2016. And the latest FBI statistics show that hate crimes against Muslims grew by 67% in 2015. Like, it's a fairly obvious group that is being identified, I think, as sort of the danger within. Right. The uptick in hate groups is one indicator of something happening, right, in the U.S. But there are other markers that we can think about, too, that are really critical when thinking about the F word. Fascism, right? <laughs> so in an article on Medium, Nick Harkaway kind of rattles off a series of these really eerily familiar characteristics on a fascism checklist, which are pretty frankly, really well written and hard to summarize. But kind of for the sake of time, we can move through some of those items on the checklist. So maybe the first one would be the merger of state and corporate power. And nationalism. And the glorification of the military and of military strength. Nostalgic appeal to a golden age, which we talked about earlier, like fascism is always about there was some previous time that was better that we need to go back to. One that we just covered now with the Southern Poverty Law Center statistics was uh, persecution of minority groups. Also the suppression of dissent, which often takes the form of censorship of media or Maybe discrediting of the media by calling them fake news. Maybe that could fit. I don't know. <laughs> and also the creation of a surveillance and control apparatus. NSA, <laughs> among other things. Worship of the state, a sort of quasi-religious adoration of certain forms of government and the ideals and practices of the fascist society. Kind of re-entrenchment of a patriarchal structure that really seeks to strip female agency and to control sexuality, female sexuality by men. As well as any non-heterosexual relationships being demonized. So some of those things sound kind of familiar. Do they, Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Harkaway really made a pithy list of some of these big red flags in that essay. So a historian of fascism, Robert Paxton, did an interview with Slate, and he talks about the ways in which our current state leaders check these boxes, the ways in which they can be considered fascist, and the ways that it doesn't. And we definitely recommend that you go see that. So maybe in wrapping up, we should return to our initial question. Was Imperial Japan fascist? 
And I think it's pretty clear that neither we nor experts in history or modern Japan have reached a consensus about that. But what is clear, I think, to us is that although fascism did not play out in the same way in Japan as it did in, say, Italy, the end results were disastrous for all. Right. And maybe the issue is not coming up with an exact definition of fascism, but rather recognizing that the trends that we generally group together under the term fascism are equally destructive regardless of the categorization. Yes. And also that history is a very good tool for thinking through these problems. It certainly is. Thanks for listening. In wrapping up, we want to say a few words about our sponsors. We're a new podcast funded generously by the American Councils for International Education Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Program and the Phillips Ambassadors Alumni Award at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. If you like our podcast, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at East Asia for All or visit our website, eastasiaforall.com for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks.